you've talked so much to so many couples about infidelity. What have you noticed has changed in the past 40 years? The digital. I mean, you know, you used to just get a, a, a little bit of lipstick on a color, a, a, a ticket to something. I have people who are literally following this morning. She knows where he is. She knows where he's meeting the other person. As it's happening in real life, this is like a death by a thousand cuts. This idea that you can literally, that you have the whole archive available to you, every text that was ever sent. You know, it's one thing to know the person had an affair. It's another thing to, to read word for word, years, you know. It's much easier to transgress, but it's much more difficult to keep a secret. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of High Low with Amrata. I'm very excited about today's guest. We have the esteemed psychotherapist, New York Times bestselling author, Esther Perel. I came into contact with Esther's work with her first book, Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. That book has been translated into almost 30 languages. And she she's also well known for um, her TED Talks. She also has a second book entitled The State of Affairs. She also has a podcast, Where Should We Begin?, that is recordings of real-life couples in therapy sessions that um, Esther uh, facilitates the conversation. It's a fascinating, fascinating listen. I know so many people who are addicted. Today's conversation Obviously, we're going to a lot of Esther's work focuses on heteronormative relationships and heterosexuality. So I just want you to keep that in mind. But we cover a lot of things, including female desire, which I was really anxious to talk to her about, power dynamics, porn consumption, infidelity, and jealousy, which was fun to talk to her about, and so much more. So enjoy. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Thank you so much for being here. I'm <laughs> a huge fan and I'm so excited. I have was telling you I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, but then also listened to a lot of interviews. And it occurred to me, you know, you're really well known for talking about love and infidelity, but there's this feeling of this huge theme in your work of mortality. I think you talk about it in your books about infidelity and how that often is a response to mortality and realizing that you know you're not going to live forever i would say i'm interested in the erotic and that means that i'm interested in what keeps us feeling alive because not being dead doesn't mean that we feel alive it just means we are surviving and I am interested in the experience of deadness in the psychological sense when we start to feel like we are no longer aspiring, curious, exploring, discovering, you know, it's this motion of the body that, and it comes from having grown up, I think, in a family of Holocaust survivors where I was continuously confronted with death, loss, grief, yearning. My parents were the sole survivors of their entire family. They lost everybody and everything. And yet they came back to life and they didn't just want to survive. They wanted to thrive. They really wanted to embrace life. So I was always wondering what 
keeps people going? How do you regenerate? How do you resuscitate? How do you come back? And I think that that's the theme that permeates how I understand desire, sexuality, ruptures, and repair in relationships. Mm. The idea of being alive but not really living is a frightening one. But I think that it's something we see a lot, you know, not just in our relationships, but in the way that we check out, right, with technology and everything else. And one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about was porn and the way that we disassociate and find a way of kind of not being alive through porn. I mean, I have a million questions about <laughs> pleasure, but how do we use porn as a way to check out and to not be alive? Porn is a huge world and industry um, and figment of our imagination and expression of our cultures. I think that one way to look at porn is to ask ourselves, what are the vulnerabilities that porn addresses? And especially in men, since they are the primary viewers and consumers of porn. So porn addresses three critical male vulnerabilities. Number one, in porn, you are never rejected. You always have a very willing person there who is saying me too, more, 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 and doesn't say you, how can you think about this? I have a headache. You're just being greedy and selfish, etc. So that fear of being rejected taken care of. Porn also takes care of your performance anxiety. It just doesn't matter. You come when you want, as you want, and you don't have to worry if you are doing it well, not well. So that is another major sexual vulnerability that many men grapple with. And the third one is that in porn, the person, the partner, generally the female, but certainly not always, it's plenty of gay porn, but it's in, it's in both, always comes and enjoys it. In heterosexual sex, this is one of the big questions. Are you faking it? Is it real? Do you really come? Do you like it? I will never know because you can pretend anything you want. And that allure of porn on a psychological level tells me a lot about what you're looking at, if you're doing it to numb yourself, if this disconnects you from people, you know, there is a theory in two directions, right? One theory says porn disconnects. And there's another theory that says when you are disconnected from people, porn is a good response. Mm. Fine, good. is an efficient response. Mm -hmm. It's so, a tool. It's a tool that addresses the disconnect that already takes place. It's also different if you, you know, the context matters. Are you viewing porn alone to please yourself, to enjoy, to play with yourself? That's one story. Are you viewing porn when you have somebody in the room next door waiting for you? That's a different story. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, when you talk about the erotic and enjoyment of life, I think about sex as like one of the great pleasures of life, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, of course, like, enjoy yourself. And if, you know, porn is a tool for that, that's totally fine. But there's a connection that can happen with other people during sex that obviously just can't happen if you're watching porn. Because I'm assuming if you're watching it by yourself. If you watch it by yourself, it's one story. You yeah. see, I think we have to really describe the context. Plenty of people watch porn together. It's a kind of a part of their foreplay. And then they are with each other. Other people watch porn actually to address those three vulnerabilities that right. I talk about or 
basically spend their time by themselves in a very efficient model, right? Porn is extremely efficient. It bypasses all the hurdles. It bypasses, you know, any questions of desire. It goes straight to arousal and to orgasm. It, it's, it's a production machine, you know? Right. It, it performs. Right. It's not meant to bring poetry in your life. But there is fine lines because when it's men, we talk about porn. When it's women, we talk about erotica. You know, we have a way of, of playing with where do we think the imagination lies. So I think it's easy to think of porn as the thing that shuts you down. Mm-hmm. The problem of porn is really much earlier. It's really when it becomes your primary sexual education. So that's what I was going to say. I have a son and I'm thinking about how to talk to him about sex. Yeah, talk and to him before he... Before. Yes, and I know that, you know, from other people that, you know, their children see porn before they've even had the ability to have those conversations. I remember the first time I saw porn and how much, you know, it imprinted on my brain. I didn't understand sex, but I, you know, saw this video. And that's true for a lot of American families in particular who don't want to broach that conversation with their children. So the internet informs. How do we, how do you explain what a child might see when they see porn and separating that from the erotic and from sex and connection with a real person? So that's a great question, but that is not the responsibility of porn. That is the responsibility of parents and schools and society. As a parent, I think you talk with your child very early on. Basically, in in my understanding, it's kind of when the child is four years old. Mm -hmm. Why four? Because at four, you become a natural theologian. You ask yourself, where do we come from and where does grandma go? And so that is when you start to talk about where do we come from and what is connection represented and how you feel sometimes butterflies and how when you like this little person in your classroom, you hold their hand because you feel close to them. You're not doing sex education. You're doing sexuality and relationship education. They are integrated. And you talk about how we feel warmth and love and affection for someone. It's that. And that conversation grows with the years so that when they get a little older at some point you say listen you're going to be exposed to porn you don't say are you what you're going to be exposed to porn like you are exposed to fast food you know and either you consume fast food that is part of your diet either you have learned that this is not particularly nutritious and there's better food for you and you can use that comparison as well that is not reality it plays with people's imagination like when you play Um, But uh, and if it irks you or if it feels too aggressive to you or if it feels you basically close this. Some people are going to want you to watch this a lot. You can decide. And I suggest at this point, it's not for you. The same way that if I take you take a book and I think it's premature for you, I would say that is not yet for you. But if you are in an ongoing conversation with your kid. You don't have, you know, the, the usual thing is you get all anxious because you've discovered that you preempt it. You check if you already stumbled upon porn, you normalize it as if it's supposed to happen anyway. So, you know what? What are you watching? You know, how, what did you experience? And if you are at ease to bring up what the kid thinks shouldn't be spoken about, you actually have a way in to help and to warn and to select and to educate rather than to just do damage control and anxiety effusion. Well, it also sounds like a great way to take away shame around sex, which is something that I think so many people have. And it's one of the things that struck me so much about the way you talk about sex. It's You're so 
um, there's so little shame. It's you're so happy even to just use, you know, words like dick. And, you know, I it found it's very refreshing. But I imagine that it can also be it, it's kind of sad that more people are so afraid to talk about sex like that. Have you encountered situations or what has been your experience as someone who's able to talk about sex the way that you are with the rest of the world in this sort of, especially in the US, this sort of puritanical relationship to it? So I work all over the world. All over the world, people are sexual beings. <laughs> they have a sexuality. They don't always have sex. Um, and we talk about the subject. And I think it's just not that different than if I want to talk about money or talk about death, which are the other two major taboos. And I basically bring it up. I don't wait for you to bring it up. But, you know, in my field as a psychotherapist, often we find ourselves working with couples and we wait for them to bring it up. And they're looking at us to wait to see if we are going to bring it up. And so if we don't bring it up, they think that's not the person I should talk about this with. And so everybody's colluding in the silence. And sexuality is this subject that you grow up in silence and then suddenly you're supposed to be able to talk about it. I think where should we begin the podcast is a, has a lot of sessions where you, sh it, you see, you hear conversations that involve the subject of sexuality in its multitude and how a certain ease about it says, this is not taboo. This is hard to talk about. I get it. This has names. It has a language. It has beliefs, values, vocabularies, attitudes. And the way I start this is that I think that the most archaic, the most rooted aspects of a society can be gleaned from how it at, from its attitudes towards sexuality. But the most progressive and radical changes in a society also manifest around its beliefs and attitudes around sexuality, particularly the sexuality of children and women. Mm -hmm. And when you take this more anthropological view, and then you explain that this large thing is actually also how we experience it on an individual level, it normalizes it. It takes the salaciousness out of it. You know, it's, it's either sanctimony or salaciousness. It's, that's what the puritanical approach often does. Rather than, it's, it's a fact of life. It's a major piece of our human existence. It's not just something you do, sex. It's a place that you go. It expresses a part of you. It connects to your interior life, to your... And once you give a framework and you say, I'm not, this is not about what you do or what and measuring and how long and how hard. And I'm not into the performance industry of it. I'm into the phenomenology of it. What is the experience with your body, with pleasure, with connection, with reproduction? And then people very rarely resist. Mm -hmm. They are relieved because they feel guided and held and trusting. And you help them with the words that they don't dare to say. Right. And it's not about saying gross words. I actually, it's perfectly fine to use, but but it's important to name what it is and mm -hmm. not play around it. You yes. Know? Your and private really parts. look it into the face. <laughs> right, right, right. Something you just said that was really interesting to me is how sex can speak to larger ideas or, or represent things about our culture, show us mm -hmm. things about the state of the world, particularly with women and children. Why do you say women and children? Because the sexuality of women is often a tool for, and of children, is often a tool of control in a society. And 
that is an old system. So that doesn't mean that the sexuality of men doesn't have its controls and its injunctions. Um, but all societies, all religions have regulated sex through incentives and prohibitions. And there have been way more prohibitions put on women. You know, mm -hmm. we have even all kinds of evolutionary theories that come to justify where men are natural roamers and men get bored more easily and men's sexuality of men. You know, it, it's this whole notion that it's sexuality of men is unprompted, autonomous, uh, spontaneous. It doesn't need anything. It's always ready. All kinds of mythologies that accompany the, how we view women in, the, in, in traditional but cross-cultural and how we view men. And it has these beliefs are not inherently true. Mm -hmm. They accompany a system, and a system is a, a set of values that some people want to keep in place. I mean, I think another theme in your work that maybe is, to me, is constant, but is less obvious is power. Mm -hmm. And um, it comes through in your podcasts in these relationships so quickly, but also, I mean, sex has so much to do with power. And I notice a lot of the time, and I think it's a really smart approach, you don't like to speak too and too much of a gendered way about sex. You talk about the stereotypes of it, but you're just as curious about male sexuality as you are female. But I'm curious, you know, about how you think gender, what sort of your, from all of your experience, how do you think gender plays into power dynamics in the modern relationship? And with sex in particular, I've heard you say things like, you know, there's a study that's shown that women get bored with monogamy more easily, like things that are surprising to people. But what are kind of your takeaways? We know the history of women being oppressed through through marriage, through these rules around sex um, still in many countries. What do you see about female desire and and power? What do you do with that? What's your takeaway? From all of your work, it was the thing I was the most curious about because I understand why you don't want to get into the gendered stuff, but also it's like, it's, you know, whether it, I don't think it's biological either, but it's, you know, it's in our DNA practically at this point because of the way we've raised and the cultural impact. So there are biological differences, of course. Mm -hmm. There are hormonal differences, there there genital differences there but there's also culture and it's this in fabulous interplay between the two but to give you maybe an entrance into since you really want to bring it into a, a, a gender difference um i will locate this into a heterosexual context i'm a couples therapist for almost 40 years in working with straight couples It is very common that you hear the male partner say, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. If she's into it, it's really beautiful. That's a very common sentence. I have yet to hear women say that. Nothing turns me on more than to see him turned on. Well, it's, I feel like it's a little bit of an easier thing, right? No, it's irrelevant. Mm. What happens to him is irrelevant if she's not into it. So what, what is the social mandate that needs to be circumvented in order to liberate Eros? And why does the man say, the male partner say, nothing turns me on more than to see her turn on? Because if she's turned on, he knows he's not hurting her. And it allows him to circumvent the predatory fear. That is the important part. Sexuality goes around and then plays with 
the very you know the it is turning around you mean the very, it goes around fear the fear it goes around prohibitions uh-huh. it goes around value taboos it goes around you know because otherwise how does he know mm-hmm. and so he knows if she's enjoying herself then he knows that he's not hurting her and he can let go with her and he does not have to hold up the social mandate of being the protector and dealing with the predatory fear why does she say no why does she say what in, in effect what turns me on is what happens to me because her social role which is the corollary of his social role is to be a caretaker is to be thinking constantly about others and well if your head is there like that worried thinking about others you cannot enjoy you have no ability to experience the pleasure physiologically speaking you have to be able to bring the attention on you which means everybody is okay so that i can focus on my own mounting sensations and experience the pleasure and therefore i have to free myself from the burden of caretaking whenever i have said it because i heard it over and over again in my practice it made sense for people the power dynamic and the and the connection to gender now because power is not always power over it's not always oppressive power it's also generative power in sex in a way you let go right you give yourself and you let yourself go you can only let go with somebody who can withstand the force of your desire that is strong if that person is fragile and you have to worry about them take care about them you can't let go it's the game you play on the beach where you let yourself fall back and the person holds you if you don't trust that they can hold you you don't fall back you will you will hold yourself in sexuality you need to feel that the other person is self can hold themselves so that you can for a moment relinquish the worry the anxiety about them and there lies the zone of free pleasure unencumbered pleasure is in that sense and do you think that women um have a fear of their desire being too much for their partner some mm-hmm. some but that is also because you know it's rare that we tell a man that he has too much mm-hmm. you know women had a history of being considered nymphomaniacs and having too much desire and now they are troubled if they have not enough desire so you know how much we play with the appropriate amount of desire women should have is also very much a part of culture and medicine and the bedroom yes. what happens yes yes culture yes. is in the bedroom yes yes we'll be right back after this with more Esther Perel welcome back to high low with emrata I think it was in the same interview where you talked about female desire being um, incredibly narcissistic you talked about how a woman has to like want to sleep with herself yes can you talk about why you think that is because i found it one of the most powerful questions when she talks about how she's responding to him or to her or to them it doesn't really matter is to say to that person would you make love to yourself and if you don't if you don't think you are worthy of being cherished adored touched held loved made love to it's very difficult to respond to someone else who wants you And do you find that to be true more with women and that's why you think that they need to be turned on? Yes, the yeah. self-criticism is stronger. Physically or 
just in any certainly way. Certainly physically. Mm-hmm. Certainly physically, because there's a long-standing history of women having to be objects of. I mean, who am I talking to? <laughs> you know, being beauty objects of beauty and objects of desires, and and being in that representation. So yes, there there is a different kind of pressure. I think you know men are getting a bit more of a of that share at this moment, but and gay men for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, yes, that voice of self-criticism. Which, by the way, when I said to you in porn, one of the most important things is to be with a very enthusiastic, willing partner. That is the flip side of this. I'm being with someone who is self-critical. If you are critical of yourself, you're doing this. Mm -hmm. The pressure on men is less about the inner criticism and more about the performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, I've definitely experienced, you know, needing to feel good about myself and even kind of turned on by myself but i've never experienced that from a male partner that sort of feeling of like they're into themselves in a in a way that you know what that they're turned on by themselves the interesting thing is that if you really analyze this it's because the pressure of male sexuality is that they should be turned on period Mm -hmm. always unprompted autonomous spontaneous without anything eliciting it god knows they shouldn't need any help or anything to turn them on, they should always it's be like just, basic you know, thing. in search of an outlet. Yeah. And so when they don't have that constant sense, there is a sense of what is wrong with me from that side. So every gender, their bane. There is nobody that walks free on this one. Right. Different, and I don't think we should make it who is the bigger victim. But every culture has done a very good job at trapping everyone into a system of pressures for which you can end up feeling constantly inadequate. Then, I mean, performance anxiety in either way, right? It ruins it. I've read some things that... If she doesn't perform, she doesn't question herself. Yeah. That is not her worry. She comes, she doesn't come, she comes a lot. She's not thinking, what kind of a woman am I? Mm. That performance anxiety around men instantly leads to the question, what kind of a man am I? Because we are often born a woman and we become a man. We are born XX and we become XY. Tell me more. <laughs> you know, for for most of, it's the same. I'm going to say to you what caught your attention when I said that women are bored with monogamy much sooner than men, rather than thinking women have less desire. Maybe they need a little bit more creativity. So this, what I'm going to say now on the on the on the gender story is that twist as well, because it's important to turn things around. For all of history, we saw men as the natural, luminous, uncomplicated, clear identity, and women was this complicated, mysterious continent you couldn't figure out. And when you listen to the language. It never was that obvious what it means to be a man. Because when it's be a man, prove you're a man, show me you're a man, it's always done with the imperative. If it was so obvious, why does (laughs) it constantly need to prove itself? Mm -hmm. Interesting. If you have to prove it all the time, maybe it's not that obvious after all. Mm And maybe masculinity is an identity that is very hard to acquire and easy to lose which makes it actually quite a bit more fragile. I have so many female friends who want to be able to have orgasms more easily in sex, and they're embarrassed of their 
desire and of the specificity of maybe their needs in the bedroom, mm -hmm. what would your advice be to them? Mm -hmm. How do they find more pleasure in sex? How do they, it's not just about orgasm, of course, yeah. but enjoyment. Well, do you have a partner, any partner, male, female, them, trans, all of it, um, that is actually curious in your experience? That's the bigger question. Are you with someone who enjoys the thought of pleasing you and the thought of your of, of seeing you with in, in the realm of pleasure? If you have that, then there's one, then it's really just Find a space, go for a walk and just say, you know, it's interesting. We don't often talk about our experience together. What's it like for you? What would you like to experience that we haven't yet? Do you, do you wonder sometimes about me? In what way is it good, less good? You know, that kind of question. And then when they respond openly, you, have, you go in one direction. When they respond defensively, you know, are you saying I'm not doing it right? I do, are you trying to give me instructions? Uh, this is being so critical. Then the thing is, you know, it's interesting that you take it. Now, of course, it depends on the tone in which you say it. Of course. But there is a question sometimes to say, I'm curious why you seem to have bought into the view. Now we're talking to the person who has absorbed that script, which is you should just know how to do it. I'll give you an example. There is an episode of my podcast that I just recorded that's coming out soon. And it's a, it's a very sad episode because she basically came to tell him I'm finished, I'm oh. leaving. But in the course of the conversation, it also becomes clear that sex has been dismal. And I say to him, can I ask you something? You, you say you've been 20 years with this woman and you know that sex has not been the best, to say the least. You are a very thoughtful guy. You bought things, you invested in things. Did you read about houses, cars, places? You must have really educated yourself on a lot of things. Could you tell me when's the last time you read something that would help you be a better lover? 20 years. And do you think he avoided it because he was ashamed of yeah, failure? Yeah, there was and fear. There was mm. the notion that you should just know. Because, and the way it came up is because he told me that she's not interested in sex, to which I said, maybe she's not interested in the sex she can have. May, in order to want sex, it needs to be sex that is worth wanting. And it wasn't good enough. And you didn't know how to look at that. And she would have told you, but you were too much into the you know, nobody tells me, or I should know, or you just appreciated the view that man knows, man has, woman it doesn't want. Doesn't she want it at least once a month, he said. I said, no, not if it's lousy. Yeah, you live, learn to live without it, yeah. So to, that's the answer to your friends is, who is your partner? And what is the rest of the conversation? Because this subject doesn't sit there alone. And then you just say, look, we, we, we talk about everything. We do have to find a way to talk about this because I try in many areas of our life to make sure that life is good for you. And I would love for us to do the same when it comes to our erotic life. I was going to say it really reminds me of sort of your overall philosophy and approach of an interest in the erotic, right? In the pleasure that life can bring. And if you're choosing to spend your life with someone and have sex with them, 
there should be a curiosity and a playfulness and hopefully a seeking of mutual pleasure. And the pleasure is not the orgasm. Yeah, I oh my that God, that's no, the experience, right? right? It's, it's, that's the piece. So when you go to talk to your partner, um, you don't just go to talk about how you want them to touch you. I think your point about the curiosity is what is essential. You, you'll hear me say it many times, but I, the point is not to help you do this. Right. I mean, people have done it for centuries and felt absolutely nothing. Mm. Women are actually experts at that. So it's really everything around, and that is not in the act itself. And if you can't elicit that, then you don't have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is not how can he make me enjoy myself more. The point is how do I experience that there is a person there who's curious about me, who is, that's a different kind of penetration, Because right? that's nothing, what's sexier than that? What could turn you on more than that? And then the rest follows. It's even the feeling in the bed of like, oh, I'm curious to know. I want to genuinely know. I want to see you experience that's pleasure. That's the difference between talking about sex and talking about eroticism. We'll be right back with more Esther after this. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. You've talked so much to so many couples. You've talked about infidelity. What have you noticed has changed in the past 40 years? I'm sure there's many, many things, but what's the sort of thing that really hits you when you when you look back and you think, my God, something has really evolved in our culture that I'm now seeing in my practice? I would say there are three main aspects. I mean, infidelity in and of itself has existed since marriage was invented. So it's historically condemned and practiced. But I think that one of the things that, and it spreads around cultures even till today, is the fact that because the romantic ideal has become so central and powerful. You are my one and only. I am your soulmate. I wait 10 years more today in the West than before, before I even commit to this singular person with whom I don't have sex for the first time as it was 50 years ago, but I stop having sex with others when I make my commitment to you. The betrayal feels very different. It's meaning, it really is not just, you know, I'm with somebody who's lying, cheating. I thought I was the one and I'm not. And that becomes an identity crisis at a level that is way deeper than it used to be. It really has always been painful. Today, it has become traumatic. I think the second thing is um, the digital. I mean, you know, you used to just get a, a, a little bit of lipstick on a color. A, ter- a, a ticket to something. I have people who are literally following this morning. Literally, she's following. She knows where he is. She knows where he's meeting the other person. She's As it's happening in real life, this is like a death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. This idea that you can literally, that you have the whole archive available to you, every text that was ever sent. You know, it's one thing to know the person had an affair. It's another thing to to read word for word years, you know, in this case this morning, it's three years and it's just like well, self-flagellation. Yeah. Well, right. I don't even read it. Please don't read it, you know? So it, that the, the, the it's much easier to transgress, but it's much more difficult to keep a secret. 
the story of grandma who dies and we find a book in which she wrote her love story to somebody that she never was with because she was married. This is like... Not as impactful. No. Yeah. No, because she was gone by then, you know, Mm -hmm. and was she... Did she love her husband? Maybe she never loved her husband, but she was a good wife or whatever, you know? Here, it's, it's everything in front of you. The other piece of this is, I think, once women could leave, once women had economic independence, or when they have economic independence, we become clear that infidelity is not just a purview of male dominion. Although I have to ask you, why, why do so many men cheat? Like, they, we they... look at, you know, in pop culture, and I feel like the stories, I feel like women leave, usually. If they're unhappy, they leave. Or they wait and then they cheat and then they leave, but they don't necessarily keep the affairs going or the, you know, cheating in the way where it's this double life. But from what I've seen, which is far less than you, it seems like men cheat more. So why do men cheat? And why do you think women cheat? Is it different? So men cheat more for, this is multi-determined. Men cheat more because for all of history, men practically have had a license to cheat. Women were left destitute without kids, without a roof. So that's one very simple reason why she has cheated less. And when she did, you can be sure that she hid it much better. Yeah. What she is that? Well, why does she? Oh, because she, because there were repercussions. Because she had everything that, to yeah. lose. Yeah. So she learned to hide but it so much better. But now that's still true. Even it's when, still true. Yeah. There's it, less to lose. You know, your financial stability might not be reliant on your husband, but, but it's, you're better she still at, will be accused more. Right. They said the but the double standard around infidelity is alive and well, no matter uh, no matter what. You know, it's changed a little, but she still will get accused a lot more. Mm-hmm. And when people go to confront the person with the affair, they don't yell at the parent, they yell at the mistress. I have a huge problem with that. <laughs> okay. So it's like yeah. the, because she should know. Because she you know, the home record doesn't exist in the masculine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, there's so many injunctions that will, you know, that, that, that are not in the everyday like that, but they, they give the heft of history and how it infiltrates into every pore. So that's part of, you know, it's always been that men cheat because they need variety and they are bored. And, but she will cheat if she's lonely and, and hungry for intimacy and therefore she leaves. Um, I think that when I say with whom, it's because the majority of men do not cheat with other men. So there must be other women there. And they are, those are, they're not, they themselves may be in relationships too. Right. Since you generally stay around you, so in, in your purview. So I don't know that we actually know the truth. Um, women have typically done what they are supposed to do. Mm. They haven't necessarily done what they wanted because the price they had to pay was way higher. And still is in many places. Even if she can survive on her own, it it really doesn't compete. Do you think it's just sort of the same for for both genders in heterosexual relationships? uh, No, it's not the same, but the difference is not nearly as big as you think it is. What do you think? Why do people cheat? So people cheat for a host of reasons. Some of them as expressions of the discontents in the relationship, loneliness, number one, sexual frustration, revenge, deadness, contempt, indifference, fighting, 
I mean, all the reasons for which you say, I want to be appreciated and liked and held somewhere else. But those are easy to understand, right? It's like affairs are a symptom of a relationship that has gone awry. But then there is what I began to write about in the state of affairs in my book, because it really caught my attention that actually people would say, I love my partner very much. I'm having an affair. Yeah. And I just like, whoa, that is becomes more interesting. It's not the usual script. So what is it about? And it summarized itself in, in a, a, a line that kind of captured it for me is that sometimes we are drawn not by the gaze of another, but and it's not that we want to leave the person that we are with, but we want to leave who we have become. And that the word that I use the more, you know, who we have become means that it's not that I want to go elsewhere, but I want to be someone else. Mm-hmm. I don't I want to be, be able to evolve. Yes, to evolve or to reconnect with lost parts of myself mm-hmm. or to connect with parts of myself that have never been able to express themselves here. Mm-hmm. Um, or here I am a mother to six children and I don't know anything else and I don't know how one retrieves the woman that is behind the mother. Or I am in a constant state of being responsible and I... Or and I want to be in a place where I can be taken care of mm. and not be the one that takes care of everybody else. Or I experience a sense of deadness. I mean, I feel loved, but I haven't felt wanted in years. And I say, is this it? Am I going to live like that for another 25 years? And why don't I leave? Because we have a beautiful life, because we do get along, because we share a family, because we share a business, because we are taking care of a child with challenges, because we because you've been there when my mother was dying. And, you know, there is it's so easy to think of it as all or nothing. It's so much more complicated that people would rather live in a compromised situation than give up. And part of why I wrote the state of affair was that I asked myself if you can lose so much everything you've built your family your your home your your reputation and you are going to cross that line for a glimmer of what Mm, it must be very important it must be way more important than when we typically just call it cheating some people that's what it is and that's all they do and they do it as repeatedly as they can but the majority of people who come to see me and most therapists are not chronic philanderers. They are people who have been monogamous sometimes for decades. And they cross a line that they themselves never thought they would cross. And so you ask, for what? And the word all over the world that I would hear more than anything else was, I felt alive. It reminds me of your first question today. Yes. You know, and I don't justify it at all. I don't promote it. I don't condone it. But I try to listen to it with an open mind so that I could understand and then help the thousands of couples I have worked with who are shattered by this experience. And I will add one other piece, which I know is probably the thing that I said when I wrote Mating in Captivity that really caught people is you cannot ask one person to give you what an entire village should provide. And that I still stand by. That I apply to me, but I also think it's true for people. You you really need a community of people. If you can't talk with your partner about something, it's okay, find somebody else. But this very person in the podcast episode whose wife is leaving him, 
basically said, I only have her. Mm. She is my social outlet. I, I'm the joker with all my guy friends. And, and I said, have you talked to anybody that you're going through such a hard time? She can't be the one to help you when she's the one leaving you. You need friends. And I just felt so sad for him and bereft. You cannot live like this. And I just, I came outside and I said to the team, this didn't have to be this way. And my team looked at me and said, this is the first time we saw you. And I was in tears. Oh. And, and, and my producer said, I've never seen you optimistic this way. Like you really believe they could have had a shot. And I just said, this is an accumulation of one thing after another that brought these people down. It's tragic. It was really like, it didn't have to be. And now that she, it, you really need friends. You need to go out with one of you guys who you think you can talk to and bear your soul. That right. community to me is essential and is very challenging in a country like the US where you are constantly only having to strengthen yourself. No, it's not self-help. This man doesn't need self-help. This man needs friends, community and other help. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful to talk to you. I could talk to you for many more hours, many more <laughs> questions, but thank you so much. All right, everyone, that was the incredible Esther Perel. I so enjoyed our conversation. I hope that we get the opportunity to have another one. I'm so anxious to hear from all of you about the things we talked about and what Esther said around gender, power, female desire, um, infidelity, porn consumption, and so much more jealousy as well. Thank you all for listening. As always, go to hilo.fm to submit your voice notes um, or use the hashtag hilo on social media. We will be looking at those. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of um, responses to this episode. I feel like we got to, you know, if you're a fan, you got to dive a little deeper, hopefully, with this episode with her. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you on Thursday. Hilo with Imrata is a Sony Music Entertainment and Bitch Era Media production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Ratajkowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.